You're listening to the Branches HB Podcast. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 11 in this series, working through the Gospel of Matthew. And last week, Jesus had commissioned his 12 disciples on a specific mission in the region of Galilee. And he was, uh, you know, telling them amidst all the pressures and challenges they were going to face that they needed to make his kingdom and his mission priority number one. They were going to have to, you know, leave behind seeking the approval of other people. They were going to have to stop seeking the endorsement of their family members. They were going to have to relinquish their earthly comforts if they were going to stand accepted next to Jesus at the final judgment. So now we turn the page into Matthew chapter 11, and you'd expect we'd get some accounts of how their ministry went going from town to town, but Matthew doesn't narrate that. We don't find out how it went. Uh, The the whole purpose of that last section was just to set up not what they did, but what we should be a part of as kingdom workers. Now, there's a new theme that's going to take the place of the theme that we've been working through, and that's these different varying perceptions and perspectives on Jesus. I mean, we've been working on setting up Jesus's ministry, you know, through Matthew chapter 10, since Christmas time, we've been working through basically the gospel of Matthew. Now that that ministry has been established, everybody's got different viewpoints about what that ministry is all about. So here we pick up in Matthew chapter 11 and John the Baptist's disciples, his followers, are bringing an inquiry regarding Jesus's identity. Now, as we work through their perceptions of Jesus, Jesus's perceptions of John, his statements about the crowd's perceptions about all of them, We're going to be looking through some temptations that we might have to have a flawed perspective in our own right. All right, let's read together. Matthew chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1. The verses will also be on the screens. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, everything that we talked about in chapter 10, he went on from there to preach and teach in the towns of Galilee. When John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one, Jesus, who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John the Baptist. What did you guys go out into the wilderness to see, you crowds? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation, Jesus asks. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, oh, he has a demon. 
The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, well, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. As I said at the outset, this section begins with with John's disciples bringing this question about Jesus' identity. And it's John's disciples, not John himself, because John at this point is in the dungeon of Herod Antipas, the, uh, the ruler of this region of Galilee. So he sends them on ahead with this question regarding Jesus's identity. Is he the Messiah that the Jews had come to expect that was spoken of in all these Old Testament prophecies, this, this coming king of the Jews that was going to lead to national Jewish independence for them to be a conquering nation again? Is Jesus that individual? Recall with me, John the Baptist, he saw his role as sort of the opening act to get everybody ready through his message of life change and repentance for the headlining act that was to be the Messiah. So, of course, you know, John, he's heard about the deeds of Jesus. He's even met Jesus. Uh, You know, he's, he's hearing the rumors going on. He's going, man, I put my life into preparing this world for the coming king, the Messiah. Is this the guy? Is this the time? Everything that I've been working for, does it lead up to this moment, to Jesus? Now, it's important to realize this question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we be expecting someone else? You know, it's not wholly negative, what they ask But it's also laced with some doubt, actually a lot of doubt. It's sort of like probably what people were feeling when I was named campus pastor of Rock Harbor Huntington Beach 10 years ago at age 23. You know, when they first installed me as campus pastor, they were scared to let me preach. They were like, I don't know if this guy has the credibility to do that. So I would just like do announcements at the beginning and host service. And my voice is cracking. I basically just got done with puberty at 23. You know, and people are probably going, who is this guy? You know, should we be expecting someone else to lead this community? And I was thinking the same thing. I had some doubts about me as well. You know, in the case of John's disciples, they had some doubts about Jesus. They weren't sure that he could be the Messiah for a couple of very important reasons. For one, we know that a couple chapters ago, it was John's disciples that were criticizing Jesus and his followers. They said, hey, we're fasting and depriving ourselves of food, we're not fancy, right? Uh, and, and of course, the, the people who do the most to prove that they're not indulging themselves, that could be considered something that's spiritual. So they think they're very spiritual in their own eyes. And here's Jesus. He's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. He's feasting with them. He's drinking wine with them. So they're saying, wait a minute. We thought the Messiah, this coming king, would be more spiritual than us. But Jesus doesn't appear all that spiritual. Imagine that, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, being considered unspiritual. He wasn't holy enough to fit this mold of the Messiah that they had built up in their minds. On top of that, a lot of these Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah were speaking to the conquering nature of this king. They had ignored the suffering servant prophecies that were also in the scriptures, but they were looking for this one that was going to deliver the whole nation. So they figured Jesus or the Messiah, he'd be more of a rebel rouser. But Jesus isn't that sort of figure. Now John, on the other hand, right, he was tough as nails. When Herod Antipas, the governor of this area, actually stole away his biological brother's wife, okay, this is Jerry Springer's status in the ancient world, He stole away his brother's wife on a trip to Rome, took her back, disposed of his own wife, married her. John publicly rebuked him, and that's what led to him being placed on death row. 
So there they are. I'm sure they're all wondering, look, we've seen Jesus do some of these things, but we've got this expectation of what the Messiah is going to be. I don't know if Jesus has enough guts. I don't know if there's enough glory in what he's doing to really be the Messiah. Now, in response to their questioning, Jesus runs those disciples through his resume as Messiah. He says, the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, guys. Good news is being preached to the poor. Essentially, he's checking all the messianic prophecies, all the boxes off. Yep, did it, did it, did it, did it. So God has visited humankind in grace and mercy, bearing salvation for the nation and for the world. But the frustrated expectations of the faithful, because remember, John the Baptist isn't a bad guy. He's a good guy. His followers are the good guys. You know, the frustrated expectations of those good guys, of the faithful, is not lost on Jesus. Because he finishes these statements about his identity saying, well, blessed, you know, happy is the person who doesn't stumble on account of me. There are expectations of me in the way that I don't match up to those expectations. And that's just it, right, guys? Jesus has this habit of frustrating our expectations, of not being able to be easily categorized into the boxes and assumptions that a lot of us hold. And we can try to resolve all that tension and that dissonance that we have when we work through the scriptures and Jesus isn't telling us what we want to hear and actually stands against the things that we feel and think. We can solve all that dissonance by simply molding Jesus into our image, by thinking of him in ways that follow our preferences and our opinions. You know, there's a term for that in our world today. It's called confirmation bias. It's when we sort of instinctively look for the data and read the data and evidence in a way that already supports our preconceived beliefs. You know, for instance, let me talk vaccines for like three seconds without getting pelted with stones. You can have the same data set on vaccines that this group is looking at and this group is looking at, right? And support totally against. And they'll read that data with a confirmation bias. They'll go in looking for the items and the evidence that supports what their view already is. And so one person walks away and says, see, I've been right all along. And the other person looks at the same evidence and says, see, I've been right all along. It's because we have this instinctive temptation to constantly look for support for the way that we already view things. Now, John had that same sort of confirmation bias when he read the scriptures concerning Jesus as the Messiah. He said, oh man, I'm so holy, I'm so spiritual because I deprive myself of all these things in the world. So if there's a Messiah, if there's a king, he's going to be more spiritual, more holy than me. He's going to deprive himself even more. You know, and oh, you know, I'm against the government and I want Jewish independence. Let's bring up this nation. I expect my Messiah to be leading with even greater fury than me. You know, essentially John was expecting a Messiah that was just like him, just more of him. And we can be tempted to do the same thing. Instead of being molded into the image of Christ, we can constantly try to mold Jesus into our image. In a flawed perspective, we can be tempted to see what we want to see in Jesus, to read in what we want to be there in Jesus. In fact, I want to ask you this question. When is the last time Jesus challenged your worldview, your assumptions, your beliefs, the way you go about life, your behaviors? When's the last time Jesus challenged the way that you think, the way that you behave in your life, where you said, oh boy, I'm standing in a different camp than Jesus. I'm not walking in his ways. 
I'm not thinking like him. You know, if you don't have an answer for that, then the assumption may be that you're just like Jesus. Isn't that funny how everybody just seems to be like Jesus? You know, or maybe Jesus is a lot like us in our own imaginations. Maybe a few weeks ago you felt a little challenged when Jesus added a tax collector and the nation betrayer to his band of disciples. Instead of writing him off, instead of demonizing him, he brought him in. That's not what you do in this world today. Wait a minute. You know, maybe last week when we talked about picking up our cross and letting go of earthly comforts, you said, uh, I don't know, this, this kind of you know, stands against the way that I see the world. We can either ignore those teachings, we can try to resolve them and say, well, you know, here's a fancy way that picking up my cross is kind of what I'm already doing in my comfortable life in America. Or we can just take from Jesus' example. See, this isn't about us molding Jesus according to our expectations. It's about molding our expectations to who he is, his example. Happy, blessed is the one who receives him on his terms, not theirs. Jesus establishes his credibility as the Messiah, right, in those first few verses. But then he turns his attention to John and John's role in God's plan and kingdom. He basically says this to the crowds. Well, guys, enough about me. Let's talk about John for a few moments. John was a popular religious teacher of the day. And he was probably the most famous teacher in this region. A lot of Jesus' disciples had come from, you know, John's band of disciples. So he goes, okay, when you guys are going after John, what did you go out to see when you went out into the heat and the wilderness, into that arid place out by the River Jordan? What were you looking for when you started listening to John? Were you looking for a reed swayed by the wind? Were you looking for someone who would bend their message according to what people wanted to hear? You know, who would scratch what your itching ears are desiring and you're there like a dog, you know, thumping its foot because you got the spot just right when he tells you national independence is on its way, you know, and everyone's going to be successful and everyone's going to be rich. Is that what you went out to listen to? No, you don't find that kind of message out in the wilderness. What'd you guys go out to see? A preacher in $600 sneakers? Is that what you wanted to see out there in the wilderness? You know, the preacher of Prada, the guy in Gucci? You know, a softie, is that what you guys were looking for? No, you find that in Hollywood. You find that in the high places. You find that in palaces. You don't find those guys out in the desert. No, you traveled out into the heat and unknown to go see a prophet. You wanted to hear someone who was speaking something beyond this world, something of God. That's what you wanted to see. You didn't want to hear some sideways clone, some spiritual dress-up of all the worldly pursuits wrapped in a God package. You didn't want to hear the same old, same old. You wanted to hear something beyond it. You wanted to hear a prophet, and what you got was a prophet in John and more. He says, among those born of women, John is the greatest that's ever come. So great, he's greater than anyone that had come before. And you think, is he greater than everybody in the Old Testament? Moses and David? Jesus doesn't clarify. He just sort of references Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where there's this prophecy saying, Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, is going to return when the Messiah arrives. And so he's saying, look, here is John. He is coming in the ministry of Elijah. Elijah spoke truth to power. He spoke against the corrupt kings of Israel. He tore down idolatry and Baal worship in the land. Well, that's John. And John is coming at the culmination of the old age and the old covenant. 
and the beginning of this new age of Jesus. And that's why he takes preeminence over all other prophets. And Jesus says here, you know, it's as old as time. Anytime there was someone who stood up for God, who spoke the truth, who spoke against the ways of the world, they suffered violence, violent opposition. And John is no exception. Don't think that that invalidates his work, the fact that he's going to be a head shorter in a couple chapters, literally going to be beheaded by Herod Antipas. Don't, don't take that to mean he's not of God. That's proof he is of God. And yet at the same time, the great John, and he is going to be less than the least of those who are joined to the kingdom of God. Think about that for a few moments. The greatest prophet of all time up to the point of Jesus, John the Baptist himself, is going to be less than the least of those who place their faith in Jesus. He's less than the least of those from among us. So while Jesus is speaking about John here, he's also trying to like orient everyone to where they are in human history. You know, he's like trying to lay out God's cosmic plan and kingdom and where the crowd falls into it right at that moment because it's a really monumental moment. It's like when you open up your Maps app and you hit the arrow and it takes you to where you are. Jesus is essentially trying to do that on a cosmic scale in God's kingdom. Hey, here's where we're at, guys. This is a tectonic, massive spiritual shift that is taking place right before your very eyes. The greatest prophet... The greatest prophet the world has ever known is less than those of you who choose to follow after me. You could be born of women, but now the people who follow me are going to be born again of God. This crowd likely didn't have much of an understanding of the fullness of what Jesus was saying. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure we necessarily have a full understanding of what Jesus is saying. And I think the look on their face is similar to what my look was the first time I dialed up to the internet, you know, 20-something odd years ago. I got the free AOL CD and the three boxes, and you're listening to the static, just, uh, you know. No idea that, you know, all of the world would be changed in every conceivable way on the other side of the development of that technology. Completely lost to me. I'm like, ooh, it said I've got mail. That's cool. You know, just, you're just staring at it. You're just dumbfounded. I think the crowd in the same way was just dumbfounded. They couldn't pick up on what Jesus was saying. They did not know the monumental shift that was happening. And in a flawed perspective, you and I too can be tempted to miss the size, the scale, the magnitude of Jesus' work. And that may be where you are today. You know, you're just in a place where you're numb to the truth. You don't get what Jesus is saying when he says, you're born again of God. You're greater than the greatest that came before me if you're least among my people. And you listen to that and it's in one ear and out the other. In a flawed perspective, it doesn't land with us. We don't feel it in our heart. We don't understand it in our mind. We're not reckoning with it. And in Jesus' emblematic saying that he says so often, he goes, well, you know what? I told you the truth. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. You know, those who want to understand this spiritual insight and weigh it out, its meaning, they're going to press in. They're going to want to know more. That's what we got to do, too. But Jesus wasn't very optimistic in this passage. Verse 16, he basically says, ah, oh, there's going to be a lot of spiritually deaf people in this generation. It's not too positive. In verse 16, I mean, he says, well, to what can I compare this generation? You know, they're the ones that they don't have the ears to hear. Because here is the Messiah standing before them who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament expectations. 
And they've just lived through the ministry of the greatest prophet that the world will have ever known up to this point in history. And they're not impressed. These people are impossible to please. To what can I compare them? They're like children sitting in the marketplace who are calling out to one another. We played the pipes for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, but you didn't mourn. Jesus is referencing the setting of weddings and funerals. You know, in the setting of a wedding, the children would be playing the pipes. And the men, contrary to this culture right now, we take over the dance floor. That's what it still is on the other side of the world, in the East, the Middle East. If you ever go to a wedding that's really culturally driven by that culture, man, it's the men that dominate the dance floor. And he said, yeah, you got the children playing the pipes, but no one's dancing. In the funeral setting, it would be the children playing the dirge, the funeral song, and the women were the professional mourners. Like that was their job, to wail and cry and express the grief of the community. He goes, we're playing the pipes, but no one's dancing. We're singing a dirge, but no one is mourning. This is one of my favorite passages on human cynicism. And I know it's weird to say that you have a favorite passage linked to human cynicism, but when you've dealt with people a long time, it's kind of encouraging in a strange way. I mean, look, on the one hand, you've got John, the ascetic, the guy who's giving up all earthly attachments. He's not feasting, he's eating locusts, he's wearing camel's hair, he's not drinking wine. He's preaching this message of righteous judgment and repentance, and everyone goes, ah, he has a demon. And then there's Jesus, who's eating and feasting, and he's a wine drinker, and he's bearing grace and mercy and salvation for the nation and for the world, and they say, oh, he's a glutton. He's a, he's a drunk. He's a friend of sinners. We have to be on guard, guys against ourselves and against others. Because when we're in an unspiritual place, we can find a lot wrong even when everything is right. We can find a lot wrong when everything is right, when we're in that unspiritual place. In a flawed perspective, we can all be tempted toward cynicism, cynicism, I can say that word, toward Christ and the church. Some of you are caught in that place. You have this negative outlook perpetually toward Christ, his work, as well as toward the church. Now, Jesus and John's ministries, they weren't an either-or proposition. It wasn't like, you know, here's Jesus doing this thing over here, and here's John over here, and one is right, and one is wrong. They were both following the convictions of God, the wisdom of God, and it ended up in really different results. But from this side of the spectrum to that side of the spectrum, nobody agreed with any of it. They said, oh, the whole thing is wrong. It didn't matter what form they took. People found a reason to reject them. So Jesus finishes with this statement. Man, you know, wisdom, it doesn't need an authenticating audience. It doesn't need a bunch of participants who are clapping from the sidelines to be wisdom. Wisdom is proved right by her children, by her deeds. Wisdom, the right way, God's way, can stand on its own two feet. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. Jesus wasn't playing the pipe for people. He was doing what God had commanded him to do in his mission. John the Baptist wasn't singing a dirge for the people to mourn. He was doing what God commanded him to do in all the wisdom that God had given him. You know, I've seen... In multiple conversations with young people over the last couple of weeks, I keep getting into the same conversation. There, there are folks from out of town who are saying, man, I can't find a church where I'm living right now because it just seems like there aren't that many communities 
that are preaching through the word of God. Like, you know, you, you get this verse, you get that verse, it's your inspirational talk for the day, but, you know, who would pick this passage to preach from? You're not going to go through a passage like this unless you're going through the word of God. And they're saying, like, I can't find that anywhere. It's a lot of young people saying this, and really what they probably mean is that there's not a lot of young and energetic churches that are working through the Bible. It's because they're playing their tune for their audience. And their audience doesn't want to hear it. You know, let this embolden us. Let this embolden you, this message and the example of Jesus and the example of John. Because they did not change their tune. Despite the cynicism and the critics, they didn't change their tune. And that's hard for us because we come pre-wired. We come hardwired in this world seeking the validation of other people. You know, if other people agree with it, then we feel good about it. If other people reject it, then we feel invalidated. But that said nothing of whether or not Jesus or John the Baptist were actually doing the work of God, the valid work of God. You know, speaking of validation, there's this principle in the world of church ministry under the topic of church growth. It's this principle that I've heard maybe more than any other principle in church ministry over the last 15 years that have been preparing for ministry or in the ministry. And it's not a principle that's a, you know, brought out from the scriptures, backed by the word of God. You know, it's got a lot of authority behind it, but it basically has been canonized, like it's been set in stone by evangelical churches. And it's this principle about church growth, that healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. And that's been a principle I've heard maybe more than any other principle related to church ministry. And it implies that if you're doing the right things and you're a healthy church, you will increase in numbers. Well, tell that to Jesus in his earthly ministry, who was so abandoned at the end of it that he needed a stranger to carry his cross to the place where he was executed. He didn't have anyone he knew who could carry the cross for him. You know, we could host this citywide prayer gathering that we're going to host through Serve City, inviting all the different churches, and two people could show up. Or maybe it's 20 people at the first gathering, but then six months later, it dwindles down to two people. And those two people, if they think about that principle, right, healthy things grow, they could look at each other and go, well, wait a minute, are we doing this all wrong? But does the absence of people in that scenario mean that they're doing something wrong, praying for the life of the church and unity in the church and outreach in the city, giving up their time? Does that mean they're in the wrong just because there's two of them? Or does it say more about the indifference of the general population regarding prayer? But you know, if you're seeking your validation in other people, you might be liable to look at each other and say, well, man, we didn't listen to God. We didn't hear what he was calling us to do. We've gone in the wrong direction. No, we can't change our tune. That speaks nothing of where God is at work. I got a new principle for evangelicalism, for our lives. Healthy things follow God. Healthy things obey God. That's the principle. It has nothing to do with the validation that comes on the other side of people's responses. Play your song for God. Play the song he calls you and I to play and don't quit. If people don't dance to it, if they don't mourn to the dirge, then maybe there's not anything wrong with what God's called you to do. Maybe they have a lot in common, this generation, with the generation of Jesus, who also didn't dance, who also didn't mourn. As branches 
We're going to keep seeking God's will to the best of our ability, not being a reed swayed by the wind, not chasing after the trends of where culture is going at any given time, but to the best of our ability, following the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be faithfully walking through the Word of God, whether or not it wows, whether or not it causes people to stumble, because this is the truth of God that we conform to, not having it conform to us. We're going to keep serving our neighbors in this city in the deeds of Christ, speaking the name of Christ, whether or not anyone has ears to hear that name and receive it. And I'm believing in the disciples here, those disciples that I saw this week at VBS, that we're not going to be hugging the proverbial wall of the dance floor, arms folded, fault-finding, criticizing everything that God's people do, but rather joining in and moving to the song that Jesus is playing in this city of Huntington Beach. That's what I'm believing for here. When I think about this passage, it leads me to have this vision for the branches community that isn't something future, it's now and it's future. You know, this longing for a community that isn't putting Jesus in our boxes, but conforming to Jesus. A community formed by Jesus. A community that actually has the ears to hear Jesus. That is listening attentively to him and his ways. A community that isn't seeking validation in numbers. That isn't seeking validation in the approval of other people. But seeking validation that comes from God. A community of willing participants who are joining with what God is doing, not sitting back like that cynical generation of Jesus' day. I believe that vision is already occurring, but I believe it's got to grow among us who have those ears to hear. Let's press into that vision in prayer with with me this morning. Would you join me? I'm going to invite up the band. Let's... Seek the Lord in prayer right now. Given that we've heard his voice, we've we've heard him speak with authority this morning through the word. And Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't be marked by that flawed perspective. That's only trying to see what we want to see in you. To mold you according to our image rather than being molded according to your image. Lord, I pray we wouldn't be those who are seeking to hear from you only what we want to hear and missing what you're actually speaking. I pray that we wouldn't be those who are stuck in this posture of cynicism and negativity regarding you and your church. We have wounds. We have disappointments. We have failed expectations. And we're going through change, Jesus. But help us through that change. Heal people this morning. Break these flawed perspectives in my brothers and sisters. Change our minds this morning. We don't want to have that flawed perspective of missing the scale and the significance of what you've called us into. That John the Baptist, as great as he was, is less than the least of those who have faith in you, who are now born again of you, Jesus. The children of God, that's what we are. Would that mean something in our heart and mind again? Would we cherish that and press into that? Lord Jesus, we believe only by the power of your Holy Spirit can you break that flawed perspective to open our ears again, to open our hearts again, to take us from the sidelines, to be participants. 
So Jesus, heal and move and free and conform us to your expectations. I want to invite you as we worship, as we sing together, to continue to ask for that from the Lord. And anywhere where that perspective that you have, it's flawed, that you've been, you've been seeking to conform Jesus to you or you. You've been missing the scale and the significance of what he's done or you're just marked by cynicism and negativity. That it's like when we're worshiping, just Jesus would wash over you with the Holy Spirit and just remove that from you and just bring healing to you. And maybe you're not marked by that perspective, but then just ask that Jesus would expand all the more your vision for he and his kingdom. Would you stand with me this morning? And I'm going to invite you as we worship, let's worship. Let's not have a half-hearted, missing the scale and significance in one ear and out the other. Jesus played the song that God called him to play and no one danced, but we don't have to be that generation. We can dance. We can care. We can invest ourselves. We can be the answer to that longing. Let's do that this morning as we worship. Thanks so much for listening to the Branches HB podcast. For more information on Branches, you can visit our website at brancheshb.com or stay up to date with us on Instagram at brancheshb. As always, we'd love to have you at one of our Sunday gatherings. So come visit us at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Locations are available on our website. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.